Hello, and welcome to the OnTech Protective Intelligence Podcast. I'm Fred Burton, the Executive Director of the OnTech Center for Protective Intelligence. During my years as a counterterrorism agent with the U.S. State Department and time spent as a physical security expert in the private sector, I've seen it all and met many fascinating people along the way. This podcast series explores the riveting world of protective intelligence through conversations with leaders in the security field. I'm Fred Burton, and now on to the podcast. Hi, I'm Fred Burton, here today with Nathalia Holt. Nathalia is the New York Times bestselling author of Rise of the Rocket Girls, The Queens of Animation, and Cured. In addition to spotlighting fascinating untold stories, she has delivered TED Talks and published her work in numerous publications, including the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, The Atlantic, Slate, Popular Science, and Time. Nathalia, welcome to the Ontic Protective Intelligence Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This looks like an amazing story. Tell us about Wise Gals. So I came across this book about five years ago. I was interviewing a woman who worked in liberated concentration camps at the end of World War II. And as you can imagine, these were interviews that were just heartbreaking and overwhelming. And as I was interviewing her, I knew that the story she was telling me would not end up making it ultimately in a book or an article. Um, and so during the interview, I was, I was just really focused on her and her stories. But what surprised me and what I kept coming back to was a part of her story that I'd never heard before. And that was the sheer number of intelligence officers that were women in these early days of intelligence in the U.S., both at the end of World War II and at the start of the Cold War. And this just really struck me because I've read a lot about World War II, a lot about the Cold War. And yet I'd really never heard about women in any of those stories, especially as intelligence officers. And so I, I ended up really just becoming obsessed, wanting to find out more about this group of women. And what's so surprising is that there were quite a few of them and their roles weren't just confined to a few years at the end of World War II. This is a group of women that had long careers at the CIA. They worked for decades, both starting right when the agency was formed and then retiring in the 1980s and the 1990s. And so these are women that just have an incredible wealth of stories to be told on the operations they worked on and on the specific qualities that they brought to intelligence. Um, so it was just such a privilege to be able to really dive into this period of history. And the best part about telling stories like this is that you really get to dig into operations that haven't been described before and that haven't been told. And that was just such a thrill when writing this book. And you focused on uh, five women. Why these five? It was a difficult decision. One of my weaknesses is that I always want to try to include as many people as I can. But unfortunately, that makes for a difficult book to read when you have too many people in it. So I focused on these women because although they're all very different in personality, they're, they're bound together by a few simple personality traits, and that is their just absolute love of country. These are women that did not work for the CIA 
because of money or because of status or power. These are women who did their jobs because they really believed in what they were doing and they were really trying to make the world safe. And so what you see for these women, you've got just such a range. You've got Adelaide Hawkins, who is a single mom of three kids and who's just desperate to work on an operation overseas. And you've got Eloise Page, who is kind of your classic Southern lady. She is very proper. She wears white gloves and heels. And she's not the kind of woman that anyone expects is really an officer in the CIA. And then you've got Mary Hutchinson, who has a PhD in archaeology and who speaks multiple languages and just brings such an interesting comebacks. And just the way that she interacts um, with the men around her is so feisty. And of course, that's another reason that they were called wise gals. This is a name that was given to them by their male colleagues because of their sarcasm and their wit. (laughs) And then lastly, you've got uh, Liz Sotomayor, and she is just such a fascinating woman. She worked in the Middle East for her entire career, basically. And her stories of how she gathered these spirings and the plans that, that she got is just incredible of what she was able to accomplish and also what she had to sacrifice to get it. Um, And then in 1953, you have this event that brings them together. And so this is another reason I picked these women is because they're all part of something called the Petticoat Panel, um, which is an important part of the book. What can you tell us about that? So this happened in 1953. And what's interesting about this is that it's just not at all what you would expect. This is when a group of women decided to take on the CIA to get better equality, better pay, and better promotions. And of course, this is not the time. The early 1950s, these kind of things just weren't done. This was not common at all. And the reason that this was able to be accomplished at all really speaks to the strength of this group of women. They were so insistent. They really wanted to build the role of women in the CIA because they believed that it is the diversity of officers that makes a great intelligence program. And what was happening at that time is that you have this transition from late World War II, where you had the father of American intelligence, Bill Donovan, who had really brought in a very diverse group of intelligence officers. And then after he ends up leaving, what you see is that the, the workforce becomes more homogenous and many of the women end up leaving because they don't feel as if they're being given good assignments or being promoted. And of course, they are making quite a bit less than their male colleagues, as you might expect for the 1950s. And so you have this group of women who have been given incredible responsibility and operations around the world. Uh, and they decide you know what, we're going to go here, we're going to come to DC, we're going to meet together, and we're going to force the administrators to hear what we're saying and why it's important to keep women in the CIA and to pay them. And this whole part of the book is, is kind of crazy to see how the men responded and what they were saying. And as you can imagine, there's a lot of frustration that happens during this period of time. But it's also a turning point. This is a period of time when all four of these women that I describe in the book come back to D.C. from their roles overseas, and they work together. And from this point, a lot happens. They decide after this that they're really going to show the male administrators what they're made of. And so we see from that point, just Eloise Page ends up going to become one of the most powerful women at the CIA and has an incredible amount of responsibility. 
and Addie finally gets to go overseas after all our years of trying to make it happen. Um, and of course, there's disappointments as well. Um, but you know, that's such a great part of biography when we can talk about the highs of their career and the disappointments and frustrating bits as well. And this was such a fascinating time in history. I know just from my book research and and some of the past stories I've written, the Cold War is raging and uh, literally America's on edge trying to figure out what the Soviets are up to. And so did did any of these five women work on the the Soviet uh, desk by any chance? So you'll see all of these women end up dealing with the Soviets, and they do it in different ways. So they're they're each in different sections of the CIA. Um, but probably the woman who has the most to do with the Soviets would be Liz Sudmeyer, um, because while she is stationed in Baghdad, she ends up developing her own spy ring. And this is quite a big deal for a woman to be recruiting, developing, handling, assessing her own ring of spies. And she does this in a way that really only a woman at the time could. She does it by recruiting people out of a beauty salon and then a tailor shop. And from this, she is able to get Soviet military plans for all kinds of different aircraft. Um, And her work during this time is absolutely vital. And in the book, we see how it's supporting the other operations and what it means back in D.C. as well. So one thing I really love about this book is that so much has been written about the paramilitary operations of the Cold War. So, you know, there have been so many articles and books, of course, about Cuba and about Iran and about other parts of the world um, where the CIA has just made enormous mistakes and horrible things have happened. And in this book, I describe operations that are much smaller and in many ways more successful. And a big reason for that is because many of these women were involved in espionage and counterintelligence and not the paramilitary operations. And in fact, we see that there is this big divergence that's happening in the CIA in the 1950s, where the director, Alan Dulles, basically says that espionage is a sack of pennies. It's not something that costs enough. It's not something he can get Congress excited about. And I have a long quote from him in the book about this, where he talks about how it's just not bringing enough money and prestige to the CIA. And that's why he really wants to focus on these paramilitary operations. And so then you have these four women on the other side who are all working in espionage and who are really doing these incredible operations, many of which have never been talked about before. And another great example of this is Eloise Page, uh, who... In the 1950s, she's working on something called Operation Lincoln. And this is happening at the same time as all of our failed Cuba operations. But hers is much more successful. And in it, she's able to recruit American scientists who want to travel to the Soviet Union. And she ends up being able to brief them and prepare them. So that way, they're able to find their counterparts when they go on these vacations to the Soviet Union and then come back with a wealth of information. And so it's it's really operations like this that you know are small that haven't been talked about much before but ended up making a big difference. And certainly vital to national security of America which uh is uh always has ebbed and flowed between 
espionage and certainly the war on terror kind of hijacked the CIA mission for many, many years and, and still does to some degree. But uh, you see espionage coming back full circle. And I think in shining a, a spotlight on uh, the heroism, too, of these uh, five ladies during this time period is, is simply amazing. I can't imagine what it was like operating the spy ring in, in Baghdad uh, during this period of time. Liz's story is incredible. So she was in Baghdad for about 15 years. And during that time, um, she was there during the revolution uh, in Baghdad, which took place in uh, 1958. And at that time, it's just, it's incredible to realize what it was like for her because during this period, everyone is leaving Baghdad. There's been a coup the government is changing. There's people rioting in the streets. And many of the Westerners in the country know how much danger they're in. Immediately, the CIA decides to evacuate their office. And Liz is the only person in the office that stays behind. And she does this because someone has to. Someone has to stay in the country in order to control their assets and control the spy ring that she's built there. And she knows that if she leaves, everything will just fall apart. And so she stays there undercover to great personal jeopardy. I mean, she knows that she could have lost her life in this operation. Um, and just her heroism at that time is really incredible. And after that period, her boss decides to nominate her for a very prestigious medal. And in D.C., they're saying, oh, no, this is crazy. We can't give a woman this medal. This is just this would be too much. Um, and her boss ends up being this really wonderful advocate for her. He really goes to bat for her. And because of him and, of course, because of Liz's work, she does eventually get the recognition that she deserves. Um, although, of course, you know, her family knows nothing about this. They they just think that she is a secretary that works overseas. And, you know, it wasn't really until her death that they learned how much she had done and even that she had been awarded this medal. We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you a little about Antec's Center for Protective Intelligence. In the world of protective intelligence, we know that gathering and sharing information is crucial. This is why we created the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. We're regularly sharing strategies and best practices, insights learned from current and historical trends, as well as lessons learned from physical security experts like you. To find blogs, podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more, check out the center by visiting ontic.co slash center. That's ontic.co slash center. Nat, were any of these women alive in the course of uh, putting the story together? They weren't. And in fact, it's a sad fact that if they had been, I wouldn't have been able to write the book. They're, these the lives they led, um, just they would never have been able to talk about what they've done freely. And the records I was able to get from the CIA would never have been released unless they had passed away. Um, but what what is you know how I was able to put the book together is because of so many of their colleagues who worked with them, and 
I was able to speak with them and what their lives were like and what these operations were like. And I also spent a lot of time with their families. Their families were wonderfully supportive and shared with me letters and diaries and photographs um, and even some interviews they had done later in life that were just private interviews within the family. Um, and so, you know, using all of these records and, of course, with the cooperation of the CIA, who was actually very helpful in helping me get declassified documents, I was able to put together their stories in a way that I, I hope really honors their legacy of what they created. Well, I'm sure you have. Uh, in looking at uh, your research for this book, what surprised you? Well, it's a tough question because there's just so many things uh, that surprised me when I was putting this all together. You know, I think one of the one of the real moments that that shocked me was this one letter that one of the women has. Her name's Jane Burrell. And she had an interesting career because she worked in the CIA during World War II and then became when, you know, when the uh, Office of Special, you know, when kind of when you have that transition time at the end of World War II where the CIA is just becoming itself and it goes through many different acronyms that I won't name here until it finally becomes the CIA. She was one of these founding members who was very important in making that happen. And Jane Burrell had this very mysterious letter in her possession. And it's a letter that is to Heinrich Himmler. And I still don't really know exactly how she received it, um, but it obviously was a prized possession to her. And it, it really goes to how much more these women did that I wasn't able to document, that she was able to have just so many different operations she was part of. Um, but Jane's story in general, I think, surprised me the most just because she has gotten so little recognition for what she's done. She uh, was the first CIA officer to die while in service to her country. Oh, wow. Um, and yet it's been such a struggle to trying to get the CIA to recognize that and to put a star for her on their memorial wall. And so I spent a lot of time in this book documenting her work during this period and her death. In, in hopes that I can finally put pressure on the CIA to recognize her sacrifice. Yeah, that's simply an amazing story. I know when you're trying to shine a spotlight into some of these secrets that the U.S. government has, it's, it's very, very difficult to get cooperation. And I, it really warms my heart to hear that the agency did help. Uh, they certainly helped me with with my last book as well, and you know I'm I'm very grateful for that. And and I think what you're doing with a story like this too, I I saw that uh, I think it was former director Panetta on your website said that you know in, in most books written about the agency during this time period were about men that were male, pale, and Yale, and uh, yet you've been able to put together a story on these female heroes of the agency and shining a spotlight on their significant contributions to uh, our country and to the national security apparatus. Well, that's certainly my goal. And I, you know, I think many of the books uh, that have been published on, on men in the CIA, it's, it, it makes sense for, you know, for all fields, we tend to focus on the men who were in charge 
And it gives us a perspective on what it was like to be in DC and to be ahead of many of these operations. Um, But it's so valuable to look not just at the people that were in charge that got all the credit and all the blame, but also the officers that were on the ground and they're actually doing these operations. And it does, it just changes how we see these moments in history and what it was like and, and how it felt to be part of this work. Um, and I think it's just very valuable to be able to see both sides of that. Nat, did you always want to tell these kinds of stories? No, I actually have a PhD in microbiology, and I worked in medical research for about a decade. So that was my love and something that was very hard for me to leave behind. Um, but I've been really fortunate in being able to write these books and articles and tell these stories. It's such a pleasure to be able to immerse yourself in these parts of history that just haven't been explored before. I know. It's amazing. Is there anything that we haven't asked you that you would like to say? Oh, that's hard because I could talk forever about this group of women. You know, they, they just have so many great stories and what they were able to do and what their lives were like. Um, and especially the friendships between them, you know, their personal lives as well. I talked a lot about Liz Sudmeyer in this interview and her work in the Middle East. Um, but her personal life is also really fascinating because she was engaged to an Italian man who she really loved. She wanted to marry him. But at that time, the CIA did not allow their officers to marry uh, individuals who were not American or in the CIA. And this is something that uh, a rule basically that was bended for many male officers and even Liz's boss in Baghdad, her station chief, he was married to someone who wasn't American. Um, He married a Syrian woman, Uh, but Liz did not have that luxury. She wasn't able to marry the person she wanted to because she knew that if she did, she would lose her job and she loved being a part of the CIA. Um, And so for me, you know, it's being able to tell both sides of their work with the CIA and what that was like, but also their personal lives and how they navigated these challenges of not being able to tell their families what was going on, of having to give up, you know, the love of your life, um, all these moments that, that really make their lives the full measure of their lives worth telling. Well, this is a book that I can't wait to read. Wise Gals, The Spies Who Built the CIA and Changed the Future of Espionage by Nathalia Holt, scheduled to be published by Putnam on September the 13th. Nathalia, thanks so much for being on the Ontic Protective Intelligence Podcast. Thank you for having me. This episode was brought to you by the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. Learn more at ontic.co slash center. Again, that's ontic.co slash center. It was produced by AJ McKeon. Our music is a track called Monte Verde Ride and was written by Brian Bristow and performed by Smokin' Nobles. Check them out on Spotify. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcast at 
ontic.ai or visit ontic.co slash center for more information. I'm Fred Burton. Thanks for listening.